Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. This time we're going to cover William Edwards Ladd, a surgeon considered the father of pediatric surgery. His career achievements were many, including the description of Ladd's bands and Ladd's procedure to correct a congenital condition. He is forever linked with a mass tragedy known as the Halifax Explosion, where he worked on the relief effort in which many children were injured. It is often said that this experience led him to become a pediatric surgeon, but the truth is not so simple. We'll cover all this and more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. William Edwards Ladd was born on September 8, 1880 in Milton, Massachusetts. He was the sixth of seven children born to Civil War veteran William Jones Ladd and Anna Russell Watson. They were an affluent New England merchant family and were able to send William to be educated at Hopkinson School for Boys in Boston, a private prep school. He did his undergraduate degree at Harvard, graduating in 1902. While there, Ladd was a member of the Harvard rowing team and continued to row for many years after, he also later served as the team's physician. Now, following his undergraduate degree, Ladd went to Harvard Medical School and graduated in 1906. He completed his general surgery training at Boston City Hospital in 1908. His surgical interests at the beginning of his career were wide and included trauma, gynecology, plastic surgery, and pediatric surgery. His first appointment after graduating was as both the general surgeon and gynecologist at Boston City Hospital, which he held from 1910 to 1913. Ladd joined the voluntary staff of Children's Hospital of Boston in 1910 on a part-time basis. Now remember that date as it's important later. He had a number of other appointments, including assistant visiting surgeon to the Infants Hospital from 1909 to 13, visiting surgeon to the Milton Hospital, his hometown from 1910, and assistant in surgery at Harvard Medical School in 1912. So let's talk a bit more about Boston Children's Hospital. It was founded by Dr. Francis Henry Brown, a Civil War surgeon who had traveled to Europe to learn about the specialized treatment of children. Founded on July 20, 1869, the hospital was modeled after the Hospital for Sick Children in London, England. The English one was founded in 1854, and the writer Charles Dickens was one of its first fundraisers, as he was a personal friend of the founder and first chief physician, Dr. Charles West. The hospital is still in operation today, and it's called the Great Ormond Street Hospital. One more cool fact. The hospital was gifted the copyrights to Peter Pan by the playwright J.M. Barry, and so receives all related royalties. Anyways, in 1914, the Infant and Children's Hospital moved to its current location adjacent to the new Harvard Medical School and Peter Bent Brangham Hospital, where Harvey Cushing worked, if you remember, from podcasts 42 and 43. At that time, staff surgeons at Children's worked only part-time and as technicians for the pediatricians, who would determine who needed surgery and manage all the perioperative care. Pediatric surgeons that wanted to be more involved received scorn from surgical colleagues who thought that their training allowed them to handle surgical problems in patients of all ages. The prevailing sentiment was that children were simply little adults with the same physiology and anatomy, a notion that Ladd would later fight to dispel. So now we need to take a few minutes to talk about the Halifax Explosion, an event often tied to the history of pediatric surgery. In fact, in just a few days, it will be the 100th anniversary of the event, as it occurred on Thursday, December 6th, in 1917. Here's what happened. So Halifax is a maritime city in eastern Canada in the province of Nova Scotia, and it's quite beautiful too. I've had the opportunity to visit. During the First World War, its harbor was a launching point for convoys to cross the Atlantic to the European theater. On the morning of that day, December 6, 1917, at approximately 8.45 a.m., there was a collision in a part of the harbor known as the Narrows between two ships. The French cargo ship, the SS Montblanc, was under orders from the French government to carry a cargo of high explosives for the war effort from New York via Halifax to Bordeaux, France. She collided with the Norwegian relief vessel the SS Emo, 
which had been chartered by the Commission for Relief in Belgium and was on her way to pick up a cargo of relief supplies in New York. So a fire on board the French ship ignited the cargo and the resulting explosion, which occurred approximately 20 minutes after the collision, was estimated to have occurred at 9.04 a.m. and obliterated nearly all structures within an 800-meter or half-mile radius. It was considered the most powerful non-nuclear explosion in recorded history. There was damage in Dartmouth, a town across the harbor, and the resulting tsunami, which rose as high as 18 meters, or 60 feet, above the high water mark, wiped out the community of Micmac First Nations people who had lived in the Tufts Cove area for generations dating back to the 18th century. The settlement was never rebuilt after the explosion. The wreckage was spread far and wide, with some almost unbelievable events recorded. The Mont Blanc's forward 90mm gun, with the barrel melted away, landed 5.6 kilometers or 3.5 miles north of the explosion site. Part of her anchor, which weighed half a ton, landed 3.2 kilometers or 2 miles to the south. And the 6-ton anchor of the Ema was found in a destroyed building over 3 kilometers or nearly 2 miles from the harbor. Stoves and lamps were overturned by the force of the blast, which started fires throughout the city. Many spectators watched the collision through their windows, and the explosion that followed caused so much shattered glass that nearly 200 people were blinded, and more than 500 had serious eye injuries. Nearly every window in the city proper was destroyed. Now, there are varying reports about the number of people killed or maimed, but it was certainly in the thousands and included hundreds of children. One estimate suggested that 2,800 people died in the initial explosion, killing 4% of the city's population instantly, and the final death count was thought to be over 4,000. Now, amazingly, the last survivor was dug out of the wreckage six days after the explosion. Now, more than 500 infants and children died, and approximately 300 children were left without one or both parents alive. The official estimates were 70 orphans, 120 motherless children, and 180 fatherless children. But out of this dark tale, I want to highlight one heroic side story. Although this is not surgical or even medical, it is too amazing to not tell. An intercolonial railway dispatcher named Patrick Vincent Coleman was working at the rail yard, which was just 230 meters or 750 feet from Pier 6 where the collision occurred. He and his co-worker found out about the dangerous cargo on the Mont Blanc and began to flee. But Coleman remembered that a passenger train from St. John, New Brunswick, was due to arrive at the rail yard in minutes. So he returned to his post and sent out urgent telegraph messages to stop the train. Here's an example of one. Quote, Hold up the train. Ammunition ship afire in harbor, making for Pier 6 and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. End quote. The messages he sent brought all incoming trains around Halifax to a stop, including the train from St. John, saving the lives of all 300 passengers. Coleman died at his post. So, with a disaster of this magnitude, it is no wonder that the local healthcare system was overwhelmed by the number of injuries, and this was further compromised by the loss of healthcare workers in the explosion and the destruction of healthcare facilities. The city of Boston sent a medical convoy led by Dr. William Ladd, then age 37, and supported by the American Red Cross. This consisted of 27 doctors, 68 nurses, and 8 orderlies. They left the day after the explosion but took two days to reach Halifax, taking a train through a blizzard, causing a delay. They were able to convert a building at St. Mary's College into an infirmary and stayed on site over the holiday season. Ladd himself remained in Halifax until January 14th of 1918. And I love this story. The city of Halifax to this day sends a giant spruce tree to Boston every year to show their gratitude and it serves as the city's Christmas tree in Boston Commons. From this experience, a legend was born. It is often said that Ladd's experience caring for the children that were injured in the explosion led him to a career in pediatric surgery. 
Now, Ladd rarely ever spoke about the event and never wrote formally about his experiences, which is a loss to us. But when asked about this, Ladd addressed the legend in a letter written in 1963. He wrote, quote, I fear I will have to make many alterations, end quote, referring to this story. Quote, as far as the effect this experience had on my selection of a specialty, I would say it was nil. From 1908, I had been on the visiting staff of the Children's Hospital, the Infants, and the Boston City Hospital. The Children's was my very first and most permanent love. As soon as it became feasible after the First World War, I devoted myself exclusively to pediatric surgery and have never regretted it, end quote. So although the legend of Halifax being the birthplace of pediatric surgery is not entirely accurate, certainly the father of pediatric surgery played an important role in that city's greatest tragedy. Now let's pick up the story of Ladd and his surgical career. Now as mentioned earlier, Ladd had begun to work at Children's Hospital in 1910 and almost immediately began to make an impact on pediatric surgery. He worked on a wide range of conditions, but his greatest impacts, which we'll focus on here, were on intussusception, pyloric stenosis, and mid-gut volvulus, and it's this last one that his name is forever connected to. But we'll get to that. If you remember from podcast 54, the surgeon Dr. Mark Ravitch described the use of barium enemas as a non-operative method to treat intussusception in 1950. Now that is when one segment of the intestine folds or telescopes into the section next to it. Prior to Ravitch's non-operative method, surgery was the only option for what was an emergency, and it's uniformly fatal if untreated. And prior to Ladd, surgery was not very successful. In 1908, Boston Children's Hospital's Dr. James Stone reported an operative mortality at nearly 90%. Ladd and Stone decided to adopt the principles of the Australian surgeon Dr. Charles P. B. Club, who had a reported operative mortality of 13%. The club actually published a world-renowned textbook called The Diagnosis and Treatment of Intussusception in 1907, which emphasized the importance of early diagnosis and, as Ladd put it, to, quote, operate early and not after exhausting the patient by attempted palliation and delay, but as soon as the diagnosis is made, end quote. Ladd published his very first article on this in 1911 called Treatment of Intussusception in Children. In this paper, he reported a 59% operative mortality, lower but still not great. Ladd was the first to use contrast enemas in the diagnosis of intussusception, and even used this to partially reduce it prior to surgery. Between 1928 and 1936, he operated on 79 consecutive cases without a single death in those operated upon within 24 hours, and a 14% mortality overall. Now next, let's cover Ladd's contributions to pyloric stenosis. So this is a congenital condition where the pylorus muscle, which lies between the stomach and duodenum, becomes enlarged and food is blocked from emptying out of the stomach. Babies present with projectile vomiting, dehydration, and weight loss. A classic physical exam finding is the olive sign, which is when the enlarged pylorus can be felt in the abdomen of the baby, which is roughly the size and shape of an olive. Well, the name pylorus comes from the Greek pouleros, or gatekeeper, as it controls the flow between the stomach and small bowel. In 1910, the operative mortality for pyloric stenosis was more than 60%. But on August 23, 1911, the German surgeon Dr. Conrad Ramstead operated on the first case of pyloric stenosis he'd ever seen. He incised, or cut, the muscle to relieve the obstruction, but left the underlying mucosa of the bowel intact and left the muscle open to heal. This was the first extramucosal pyloromyotomy, and Ramstead reported his findings in 1912, and this became known as the Ramstead operation. Ladd adopted this new technique, performing his first Ramstead operation in January of 1915. And by 1918, he had 26 cases and had reduced mortality down to 15%. By 1927, Ladd reported 29 consecutive cases without a death. 
In his own words, Ladd said, quote, The operation may be classed as one of the most gratifying in the field of surgery, end quote. So let's talk about the eponymously named Ladd's bands and Ladd's procedure. This is related to a condition known as mid-gut volvulus. During development in the uterus, the fetus's intestines rotate into place. If this rotation is incomplete, babies can develop twisting of the bowel, which is called a volvulus, from the Latin volvere, meaning to roll, and can lead to obstruction or blockage of the bowel. Ladd developed an interest in this condition, and in February of 1932, he wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, which described the embryological cause of the disease and the, quote, mesenteric attachments, end quote, between the cecum, which is the right side of the colon, and the posterior abdominal wall. And these became known as Ladd's bands. In October of 1936, Ladd published an article, again in the New England Journal of Medicine, called Surgical Diseases of the Alimentary Tract in Infants, introducing his method of surgically correcting mid-gut volvulus. This described the division of Ladd's bands, widening of the small intestine's mesentery, performing an appendectomy, and placement of the cecum and colon to the left, remember the cecum is normally on the right, restoring an earlier state of embryologic development. So prior to this description, there were only 15 operative recoveries out of 349 articles in the literature, and mortality rates, if no operation was performed, was 100%. So in his paper, Ladd described 21 operative cases in which 16 survived. The Ladd procedure remains the operation of choice for mid-gut volvulus. Now let's highlight the trajectory of his career. Ladd was named the Chief of Surgery at Children's Hospital in 1927, a position he held for 18 years. He became the first and only full-time surgeon at the hospital in 1936, and one of only three full-time pediatric surgeons in the U.S. at the time, giving up his surgical practice in adult medicine completely. Ladd literally wrote the textbook on pediatric surgery, along with Robert Gross in 1941, called Abdominal Surgery of Infancy and Childhood. It became the standard reference in pediatric surgery. But here's an interesting little side story. His co-author, Robert Gross, was also Ladd's chief surgical resident at Children's Hospital in 1938. In August of that year, Gross became the first surgeon to successfully perform congenital heart surgery by successfully ligating, or tying off, a patent ductus arteriosus in a relatively healthy seven-year-old. The problem was that Gross waited until Ladd went on vacation to do it, believing that Ladd wouldn't have agreed to it had he been in town. The surgery had been attempted by another surgical group the previous year on a 22-year-old woman who died shortly after the surgery. So this bit of subterfuge by Gross led to a permanent rift between the two. Ladd kept Gross from being named his successor as Chief of Surgery at Children's Hospital following his retirement in 1945, but a committee eventually did name him Chief, and Gross went on to a very successful pediatric surgical career. Okay, let's continue. The William E. Ladd Chair in Children's Surgery at Harvard Medical School was formed in 1941, and the first name was Ladd himself. He held the chair until his retirement in 1945. He helped to establish the surgical section of the American Academy of Pediatrics in 1947, and in 1954, the American Academy of Pediatrics established the William E. Ladd Medal as, quote, the highest recognition an American pediatric surgeon can receive, end quote. One of his greatest achievements was the legacy of trainees that Ladd left. I read this fact, and it's pretty amazing. In 1997, nearly three-quarters of pediatric surgery program directors and two-thirds of all practicing pediatric surgeons in the U.S. and Canada could trace their training lineage back to Dr. William Ladd. Following his retirement in 1945, Ladd lived outside Boston and remained active in hunting and outdoor activities until his death on April 15, 1967, at the age of 87. Although the legend of Halifax as the birthplace of pediatric surgery is not really true, 
The surgeon that went there to assist them in their hour of need really did establish pediatric surgery as a distinct specialty. Not only did he leave a legacy of improved treatments for children that saved countless lives, he helped to train those that would continue and further add to his legacy. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will cover an interesting and broad topic, which is microsurgery. We'll look at some of the important discoveries and people involved and talk a bit about the use of microscopes in surgery. Should be pretty interesting. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you access the show and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.